Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We have with us today three of the movers and shakers of the recording and record business, kind of moguls, if you will. Three people who are responsible for a lot of what you and I see in record stores. We pull out of those record bins or order on the Internet. Broadway cast albums, off-Broadway revivals, uh, reissues, all of that. That's what we're getting into today. Bill Rosenfield is with us. He's been responsible for over 50 original cast recordings, including Avenue Q, Carolina Chains, the revivals of Cabaret in Chicago, Ragtime, The Full Monty, You're in Town, Parade, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and the original Assassins. He currently divides his time between New York and London and currently is the Broadway consultant to Sony, BMG, and EMI recording companies, and he has been the senior vice president of shows and soundtracks for RCA Victor. Sounds very impressive. It is. It's but, entirely impressive. Must be a big business card. <laughs> um, no, not anymore, because they let me go. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that. And sitting just to the right of Bill Rosenfield is Brian Drutman, the senior director of DECA Broadway. Brian has overseen such recent cast recordings as Stephen Schwartz's Wicked, The Boy from Oz, and Seussical. Over the last three years, Brian Drutman has released over 75 reissues. For Decca Broadway and Sony Legacy, he most recently co-produced the 106-song, five-CD set, Broadway, the American Musical, based on the acclaimed PBS documentary. Of course, Decca Broadway also has reissues, including Oklahoma, Guys and Dolls, Annie Get Your Gun, and many, many more. Welcome, welcome well, to you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. And Kurt Deutsch, having a successful uh, career as an actor, Kurt and his wife, Sherry Renee Scott, started a record label called Shikaboom Records, SH for Sherry, K for Kurt, I presume, and Boom, boom for, for Boom. Well, yeah. Shikaboom Records. We won't say. Yeah, exactly. Releases on Shikaboom include Amour, Debbie Does Dallas, Bear, a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant, and just recently launching a new label, Ghostlight Records, and just coming out now, The New Moon, the New York City Encores production of that show, The Irish Reps, Finian's Rainbow, and soon to be released, Hair. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. Well, welcome to you all. It's Obviously, on a channel that uh, had so much Broadway, off-Broadway, and simply musical theater recording, basically 23 hours a day, 24 hours a day, if if this program is not on, um, I think there's an assumption among the people who love cast albums that every show should be recorded. If a show is not recorded, people are outraged, and there's not the opportunity to understand the challenges that it takes to bring this material, because despite John's introduction of you all as moguls, I think we might find that in the grand scheme of the recording business, the cast album business is a smaller subset that's deeply meaningful to those of us who love theater, but perhaps not as as meaningful to the heads of the big conglomerates. So hopefully today, for, for our listeners, we'll have the opportunity to elicit from you the challenges, how the decisions get made, and how we get that material onto the airwaves, uh, into the record stores, and, uh, and on our own CD players. So that's the challenge of today. I think just to start off, let's talk about how an album gets produced. Obviously, you have to have material to work with, a Broadway show, an off-Broadway show, whatever. You guys go out and bid for the rights to these shows? Did the producers come to you and say, could you please record my album? How, do, how does the whole process work, from the inception to the final CD in the stores? We'll start with Bill. Um, okay. Uh, uh, 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, um, it, it works both in all those directions. Um, sometimes I would, pre- I would do a preemptive call. I would call a producer when I hear about a show or if I hear about a show from a composer or a lyricist or a director or someone – I would uh, I would immediately express interest because it sounds like a good idea. This is before the show maybe is even in the theaters. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- one of the things about Brian and Kurt and I is that we all kind of live in the theater community. So by the time a show gets to Broadway, it's a revival as far as we're concerned. <laughs> it, we, it's been kicking around for so long and we've been aware of it for so long. Um, and sometimes you're pitch to show constantly over a four or five year period and you always kind of demure because it's of no interest and yet you don't want to be rude because a show that's of no interest might in fact turn out to be really kind of wonderful and then you you're you'd be in the embarrassing position of going i've been wrong for four years and now i want to bid for it or that same producer's next show might be the big hit right you want to stay on good terms unfortunately now in in today's economic climate you can't really as a record exec afford to build the relationship with the producer and start out with a flop because it's just you'd lose too much money and the people that you answer to or the Brian answers to that I answer to but Kurt answers to no one except my wife your wife and and she's formidable formidable I I believe would be the term (laughs) um that you can't you can't Say let's let's lose three hundred thousand dollars now because coming up a year and a half from now is going to be what I think is going to be the really big hit. Um, I enjoyed a, a kind of wonderful period at RCA where I had a level of autonomy where I could afford to do that, though I still got yelled at about it. Um, but now you you just can't. Uh, a producer, everybody, it's the first time at bat each time. There you can't make a blind commitment now on behalf of a record company to an artist or to a producer. Well, do the show producers shop around? Do they go to oh, yeah. you, Bill, and you, Brian, and you, and, Kurt, and look and for the best deal they can make? Other, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to add sort of to what Bill was saying uh, by way of introduction, you wish in a sense that the bidding were like Sotheby's or Christie's where you just get a catalog and you go, I want this one, I'm going to pass on this one, I want that one, this is my limit on that one. And it just doesn't come up in one day, as, as Bill said there. It's a period of gestation and things change and, and the company's uh, attitude changes. And um, you're always sort of moving along with the project, deciding whether it's becoming something you're interested in or not, or whether often at times a company will be interested in a project because another company's expressed interest in it. This often happens uh, with a lot of these kind of projects. They may know nothing about it, but an executive, uh, say, at my company, will say, oh, I heard such and such is, is looking at this. Get on it. You know, and, and that's, that's, that's often very silly. But, and there's you know. also the – I'm sorry. This is Kurt. Hi. There's also the, <laughs> Hi, the, uh, the, the idea that since Wicked, for example, is a universal mm-hmm. show, they have an invested interest in DECA owning the cast album. So – so for if you're invested in the show or, or you know, they'll they'll do that. Now, that, Kurt's making a great point, but I have to make a, a correction to that, um, which is that is true, uh, that often if a studio which has a music wing um, is investing in the show, then it might go to the music wing. But the, the correction I want to make is actually a lot of people don't know that Universal, the movie studio, and Universal Music are not connected anymore. They were oh. at one time. They uh, were at the time that Wicked was coming together, though. Um, no, they weren't. They weren't. The, the, uh, they were 
They weren't. I mean, okay. Mark Platt, the, the actual the, – the, the main investor and producer of Wicked um, is connected with the movie studio and um, maybe initially they thought the music wing could do it. But when it came time to actually uh, work out the deal, we were removed. So, um, so We still did it. We still did it. We still did it. I mean, they brought it to us, and we were interested. I mean, maybe, maybe they brought it to us in advance of someone else, uh, well, but but it wasn't exclusive to us. Let was that because that of the the prior relationship that you had with what was formerly the same company? Was they were we, they were the same company, so I, I think they automatically assumed uh, we'll go to our rather our than bidding it first. around to other companies. Uh, and like, Disney's the same way, right? And Dis- yeah. And, like, and also, like, we can assume that The Wedding Singer, which is going to be co-produced by Margot Lyon and New Line Cinema, New Line Cinema has their own record label of New Line Records. We can pretty much assume among us at the table here that they're going to do that album. Yes, yes. But, Kurt, you've got a, a, a different scale in which you're working and with with the new label because you're – First release is certainly New Moon is coming in the out of the Encore series, um, and Finian's Rainbow comes out of a production at the Irish Repertory Company, a small not for profit off Broadway mm-hmm. theater. The scale of interest in those shows might simply not exist at a Sony or an RCA or a Universal, and so you you've got a different niche. Well, yeah, but I think it's even more. I mean, the more. Deep, deep than, deeper than that. I think that the idea of cast albums have changed dramatically over the past. I mean, even five, ten. six, ten years. Um, cast albums were the you know pop music of the day back in the sixties, fifties, forties, and you know now they're a very. It's a very, very small audience in general, and they cost an astronomical amount of money to make. Um, you know, and so if you're really weighing the difference between should I do a pop album or a cast album, you know, most big companies would rather do a pop album. There's the cachet that comes with doing a, a cast album and the respect, but respect isn't going to pay the bills for, for the most part. Um, the reason that I started my company in the first place was because I felt like there was kind of uh, uh, that niche was not being filled. Um, and The New Moon or Finian's Rainbow or The Last Five Years or Amore or any of the shows that I've done have been all with the help of producers and with the help of people who love the, who want these shows recorded. Well, in the case of Finian's Rainbow, there's Matthew a credit Broderick. for Matthew Broderick and, and uh, Sarah yeah. Jessica Parker. Exactly. They, they paid for the recording. Now – what kind of money? And again, at the scale, it may each of the scale of the companies, it may be different. But what kind of money does it take to produce a cast album? Uh, well, a Broadway a Broadway cast album can cost anywhere between uh, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to five hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Yeah. And just for comparison, a Madonna or a Britney Spears or a pop album, what does that cost? Well. To produce? I, and it's more expensive. Well, it's expensive. a di- it's a di- that's a different scale because you're you're talking about I mean a Madonna or a Britney. Sp- they're ta- you're talking about huge m- millions of dollars of, for advances, and producers sometimes get two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a track. I mean that's you're, but a but a but like a David and, Gray album right. or something okay. which he made in his garage cost five thousand dollars. Well, let's say for for a typical pop music album compared to a Broadway album, are we talking more money for that? It, it isn't so much. The the cost as the, the return. Of, right. If you can, it's worth spending two million dollars on a pop album if you're going to sell eight million copies. Sure. 
Um, if you spend and if you spend five hundred thousand dollars on a pop album and sell eight million copies, there's potential to sell eight million copies. But if you spend five hundred thousand dollars on a show album, that potential is not there. Okay, let's let's take what's considered a hit show nowadays: Avenue Q, Wicked, any of the hit shows. Yeah. How many albums might you, in your best dreams, within a, say a five year period, sell? I mean, obviously in perpetuity, you could sell a lot more. But say in the next well, couple well, of years, Brian, right now you've got the best selling cast album since Rent. We hear yes, that's it, what the publicity that's, material that's, says. That's, okay, uh, so that, we'll buy it. That uh, that machine, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Wicked has sold uh, two hundred and fifty thousand in slightly less than a year, mm-hmm. and. And that is considered a, an extremely strong number, a, a big hit. Uh, it's more, it's more than Hairspray at this point. Yes, exactly. Right. It, which, is, which was prior to that. That's open that sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like Avenue Q, we've sold, I believe, 65,000 copies. And yes, it's in a smaller theater and it's a smaller show and it's a different kind of music. But 65,000 copies for Avenue Q, everybody's thrilled. They're thrilled. In the um, last five years, has sold around 35,000 copies. And, you know, that's a two-person musical. That's tremendous. Right. When you compare for an off-Broadway show that closed relatively three weeks after the That closed three weeks after the album came and, out. Right. Considering a modest budget. I mean, Wicked, for example, right. cost $400,000. Now, Wicked's been open about a year or so, maybe a little yes, more. Exactly. Just for comparison purposes, a show like My Fair Lady or Hello, Dolly or Oklahoma, how many albums of those have been sold, would you say, over that period of time? Now, there's, what I'm driving at is, in perpetuity, down the road, you're going to sell more albums of Wicked. It's sold a quarter of a million so far. There's going to be more coming I, down. I don't think it'll sell more than My Fair Lady. Well, <laughs> the, the, two, the two things I would just say to that are that My Fair Lady was much cheaper to produce, even in 1950s dollars, than, than Wicked is today. Um, and the other thing I would say is that... Um, and I don't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the idea is that My Fair Lady at the time was the popular music of the day. It was and a Madonna album. Exactly. It, 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 it was a Madonna totally album. Totally different era. Yes. And and Wicked is, you know, God love it, but it's it's Adina Menzel. Every little girl wants to sing, right. you know, wants to sing Defying Gravity, you know. And, and some so, little and, boys as well. And probably a lot of little boys. <laughs> yeah. uh, or big boys. Or big boys. <laughs> um, but, um, I think it's a different show for Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But the, I think the thing that you're, you're going after is a very, very important point. And I think the reason that I can – my company as an independent label can do – cast albums and potentially over the long period of time understand that this is more like an annuity it's going to it's not i'm not looking at a 6 month window or a 9 month window to make my money back like a major corporation right. is um i think that they they understand it too but when everything comes down to the bottom line and the bottom the bottom figure you don't want to lose money at the end of the year. Unlike pop albums that maybe have a very short shelf life. Exactly. They're hot now. They may not be hot in six months. I think what you would all probably say is that these albums presumably have some shelf life. They'll be around for a long time beyond the next six and months. And not only that, Jason Robert Brown, for example, the last five years, he's 30, I don't know, two, three years old. And, and you know, hopefully he's going to write many more musicals and people will want to continue to buy his musicals and then look back at his past. I mean, if you think about Sondheim, it's the same thing over his career. 
how many people buy his al- you know his albums over actually not a lot <laughs> no. it's sad no. to say yeah. but but, but, even, but, but there is, but once you do get a hook onto a composer like Sondheim you do buy them all right. and collect them all and trade them with your friends but even albums like Brian's uh, Wicked or in the case of RCA's Avenue Q they may have sold a quarter of a million copies for Wicked 65,000 for Avenue Q as of now right. but 10 years from now multiply that times whatever factor you want they're going to Still be popular. People are well, still going to be buying. Factors are clearly going to be: Are there national tours? Are there uh, additional professional venues? Are there regional theater productions? And ultimately, what happens to these shows in stock? Because I would assume that a show like, um, say, an Avenue Q, which may not over the years. Uh, get tons of junior high school and high school productions is going to sell very, very differently than the way Annie has sold exactly. over time. Well, yeah. yeah, but Avenue Q is going to have a very, very interesting life because Avenue Q is going to be playing in Vegas. Right. going to be sitting down there. There's going to be a TV show. There's uh, a whole new paradigm you know, there's a whole, you know, So Avenue Q is going to you know, have a very, very interesting... It'll be interesting to see... If that translates into record sales. For the original cast cast album. Before we come off the costs, I think it's worth noting, and and just if you could explain, the the requirements that are placed upon you that are not even in your control by union situations, by the Broadway unions, for these shows to be recorded. Can you give us some idea, frankly, of what the performers get paid, what the musicians have to get paid, because that's not under your control. And and basically – how many cents of every dollar goes toward performers, goes toward copyrights, goes to this, goes to that? In other well, words, can, you're breaking the dollar down. Wouldn't break it down to why don't why don't we can each take like a take section? Okay. All right, Fair so enough. like because we all know what you can all take they are. musicians. <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, you can take musicians. I'll you take can take the actor, right? actors, <laughs> and uh, and I'll take. Um, sure. who, who, who's next? What, the other the like the, composers, the composers, right? Composers don't get paid. They yeah. get paid a mecha- They get paid after sales. Yeah. But but well, go ahead. Okay. Well, but that's worth knowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, for instance, musicians, you are allowed each three. You are allowed to use fifteen minutes of music for each three-hour session, and you can only have four sessions in a day. Um, so, but if you have seventy-five minutes worth of music that you want to put on to the CD. You pay them for five sessions in a four-session day so that they – you just kind of hide the fifth session within the course of that day. And that's 15 minutes of finished music? Of finished music. Yeah. Three hours of recording. Three, yeah, for, per three hours of recording. For a 15-minute finished segment or whatever right. number of songs. So that um, many times you'll see a CD, the, the running time is 59, 54, <laughs> and that's because – if you go if you go three minutes over, then it really kicks into the full fifteen minutes. But there's a, an overtime thing. But those are very those are very strict rules for the the musicians, and the and that's how it has to be timed. Um, and the musicians make a significant amount of money. Um, uh, I think it's like three seventy five per three hour session now. Three hundred seventy five. Yeah, but if you have. 18 musicians, and usually for recordings, you expand the orchestra to maybe 20 or 22 or 26, or in the case of Millie, 29, $375, four, four times $375 times 29 people. $1,500 a head. Right, but not counting their doubles. If they double on, if they, one person, if they pick two different player, kinds also of players. As well as there's probably pension and welfare payments to the union exactly. and so on. So, so all of that adds up so that you can walk away from a, a, a big time, splashy Broadway show with, 
Eighty-five to a hundred thousand dollars in musicians' costs, and is, is is that a buyout, a one-time only? That is a buyout. It's um, unless a an airline decides <laughs> that they want to play your album as you know for uh, as a as a radio show, then there's an additional cost that the musicians' union have built in in the last two years that you have to pay them, which is kind of why you don't hear show. There's no show tune station. Uh, except on Continental Airlines anymore because it's an additional cost that recording companies aren't willing to bear. Or when the recording company does sell that the rights to the airline, then they would build it into the fee they charge the airline, I would think. It, yeah, but it's a different division that does it. It's, corporations are too thick, so you, one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. And, and I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's music. I'm sorry. You still more? That's just the musicians. Right. In addition to music, there is um, orchestration, which the orchestrator gets literally the same fee that he or she got for orchestrating the show in the first place. He gets it again. They get it again without doing anything, without lifting a pen. Although, as you say, sometimes you have additional musicians, or is it just more instruments on the same It's more instruments on the same line. Okay. But then the copyist um, also gets probably two-thirds of whatever their initial thing wa- their initial fee was for the show, but they are paid on a per-page basis, per-page and per-line basis. And the basis. copyist basically copies the music for the different instruments? Right. Now it's just a computer program. But, but it, and it used to be a, a, an art form, that, a very complex art form, where people hand-wrote copying things. Now it is basically computer programs and hitting print and Xeroxing, and they still get paid very well. And and it's a it's a big thing for me because sometimes the fact of the matter is that on an album of a marginal Broadway musical, the person that makes the most money is the orchestrator, and the person who makes the second highest amount of money is the copyist. How about the conductor? No, the conductor just gets a double fee for a double the musician's double scale, the musician unless gets. they've negotiated a higher thing. Mm-hmm. The okay. only thing I would add to that, um, the one little perhaps new thing that perhaps an orchestrator or a copyist does is amend a song for a recording, um, a few bars, changing it from, from its performance uh, manuscript to its, its recording. But it ain't worth the money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and no, there's, no, uh, no. there's two why, other... Why would, they, why would they make a change? Just to make it sound better on the album, give the song a button. Or in some cases, you might have a long underscore that's being contracted for the purpose of the cast album because you need to keep the timing down. Right. Right. Or it just – it would be boring to listen to the underscore. Or maybe there's dialogue during the show that you don't want on the cast album. There's also three other other things. There's the vocal arranger (laughs) that can sometimes get get a fee. There's the musical director who now sometimes negotiates a fee for the cast album. And um, there's the dance arranger, and they sometimes get a fee when you if hear, you use the dance arrangements in in the show. And sometimes it's all the same person, and it's all the same <laughs> stroke of the pen, and yet they get paid three or four times for it. So then if, you, if it's required that you have tap dancing feet on a, a track, do then the dancers come in, do they get paid? The, dan- the well, dancers get paid because they're appearing they're, on the But album. they're probably in the they're chorus anyway. The actors so, now. Yeah, let's talk the about performance. Okay, so and, I'm sorry. No, and, you know, to even just to add to that, to continue this, but I'm avoiding the subject, but um, are the directors and the show's press agents who are also on the payroll, and it's very debatable what their contribution is to a cast album, but yeah. that's something we right. can get on into later. Um Actors, I mean, the cost can be anything. It depends on on how many people you have and and what their salaries are. But generally, 
actors are paid a week's salary for one day's worth of recording. And, that, and that's how it works. And, and the, the prices range. They can go up to $100,000, $50,000, whatever it is, depending upon what they're making in terms of the show. So the stars of the show who are making a little more money than the chorus people are obviously being paid uh, in the cast recording uh, that, that much more. Um, there's sort of a, a – uh, we hope in, in general, we hope to uh, record shows in a day. Uh, often it doesn't happen. There's there's kind of an unspoken agreement uh, that the performers, if they need to come in to do a, a retake or, or something else on a second day, they'll do it gratis. It's a wink and a nod kind of thing, and that and that usually happens. Not um, on my so. recording. <laughs> not, 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 <laughs> oh, all right, well. <laughs> Maybe if you, if you were deck of Broadway, it would. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we, we used to say that, look, uh, this is the way it sounds. If you'd like it to sound better, you can come in after the show tomorrow, but we're not paying you. That's we're not you, supposed right? to do that. Yeah. <laughs> after all, this will live in perpetuity. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Little girls um, in, in, in Omaha will be listening to this. There's also this beautiful thing called auto-tune, which, you know, if somebody's a little flat, you can just, with a little no program, names, you, can, uh, yeah. you can fix their voice and yeah. make, them, make them sound better. Now, Kurt, your assignment now in this discussion is to bring up the other aspects besides the musicians and the performers, the, right. the, the, the business aspects. Of well, it. you have, I think we got into it a little bit, but you have to pay the stage manager. Stage manager is usually a minimum of about twenty five hundred bucks plus the union fees twenty five or twenty six twenty eight seven is like the the for Broadway yeah and is Um, the stage manager involved in the recording actually the stage manager is an important person and they work very very hard okay there's the actually we didn't talk about the music contractor music contractor is somebody who who is the one who actually works hard too because he actually coordinates all the all of the musicians. And make sure all, everything's rented, and you know all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. that's a that's actually not a small. It's chunk not a of money. small job, and and I don't begrudge them their money I, at all. And um, that's the person who gets the musicians there, make sure the instruments are delivered by the. the yeah, but also also stands there with a stopwatch to make sure that you don't go over your fifteen minute song allotment, and and making sure they're getting their breaks that they need to get. And you know, you could be in the middle of a take, and you got a break, and. I mean, literally with a stock stopwatch, and it's just – it drives I think we've all been crazy. In, in sessions where they're in the middle of a last take, and the clock goes like this, and you have to stop the producer and just go, it's over. We're done. Mm-hmm. And, and because it goes into that overtime, and if the contractor isn't sympathetic or understanding of what the situation is – you you get charged mm-hmm. a lot. That's right. And you know, based on what you're saying, you're talking about overtime that literally suddenly becomes tens of thousands of dollars the moment you the clock yes. ticks over. Right. But yeah. if the contractor's sympathetic, can they kind of look the other way to let you finish the tape? They they no only they, at Deca. <laughs> no, yeah, they, they, they just send a bill to Brian and it works out. Um, uh, they, it isn't that they look the other way. They know that earlier in the day we came in early, came in under that time, and so that they'll they'll make the math work out. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always happen. It sounds like there's an interesting balance here, which is because we're talking about the union strictures. We're talking about the needs of the people who really are integral to the recording and then some people who because of union requirements or simply past practice. But is there a sense that we need to record these shows? I mean bottom line – is this a chore for the people when they get involved or is this a – no, we realize the need to to preserve this material. I think that – I think personally the whole notion of cast recordings has to be looked at as not a money-making venture per se but as a marketing tool for a show. And I think for many, many years 
um, producers have always thought that they would never make any money off of a cast album. So a record label is just going to pay for it. So they didn't really care how much it costs because they know somebody else is going to foot the bill. Um, now things are changing and producers have to fight to get their cast albums made, a lot of them. And they're finding, they're realizing, well, why does it have to cost so much? Why do I have to pay the orchestrator this? Why do I have to pay the actor this? What? And it's unfortunate that you have to do the cast album in one day even. I think it's, I think it's a horrible pressure to have to do an album in one day. It sacrifices the quality. It sacrifices a lot. Well, I, act, I actually love the one-day aspect of it. Um, as awful as that day is, it's also a fantastic day. And... I'm and I'm not a performer. I've never had to work under that kind of pressure, and they do have to deliver because and and there is an enormous amount of pressure. I will say this though, there is an exhilaration about that day that I do think does come across on the recordings, and the recordings that are spread out over four or five days tend to get people at their most relaxed and while it may they might be more comfortable i don't think that the albums contain the energy that the one day marathon sessions do have i i i agree with that entirely and in fact when actors are on stage they don't stop uh, and say, this is not such a great audience. I'll give you a better performance tomorrow's matinee. They're just there. And, and you do have that feeling in the recording studio where they just have to get it done. And and you don't have, as Bill said, the luxury of, of coming in a couple of days later when I've got better thoughts in my head or whatever it is. Although very famously, we have that footage of Elaine Stritch struggling with the company album many years ago. And that's that was a a tough situation. Right. And and actually that's one of those situations where they had no choice. They had to bring her back. But that's also, you know, stretch. So, <laughs> Well, supposing that, say, the star of the show has a bad cold and sounds terrible, can you go back in and redo that person's part without bringing everybody else back in the studio? Yes. And, and certainly in that, in that situation, you, you'd have to find a way to do it. When we did the Putting It Together album with Julie Andrews, it was an intimate show, and um, one of the days that we were scheduled, she called the night before, and she said, I can't do it. And uh, she didn't sound like Elmer Fudd. She, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I hope that wasn't your British accent, <laughs> but it was... <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, but she's Julie Andrews, and she is one of the most gracious and wonderful human beings to walk the earth. And so we canceled that day, but we had to pay... All of the performers, all of the musicians, and the studio costs for that lost day. But it isn't like then we sent her a bill. She apologized profusely, but she said, "But it was an ensemble show, and there was no way to do it without her being a part." You couldn't of that. have recorded everybody else and just leave no. her spots blank. No, uh, it, it it wasn't. That wasn't. Uh, nobody else wanted to do it without her being there. Now, when you're in the studio, that this raises a question because John talks about you're doing the spots blank. Essentially, are the songs being recorded as they are performed in the theater or are you multi-tracking and you lay down an orchestra track and then you play to a playback? Is, is every voice coming together or are there different approaches it, to that? A, there are a million different approaches. Um, I love – Doing the show live, and you know, you've you've had you've we've all you all have the meetings, figuring out what's going to be on the album. And uh, Jay Sachs, one of the album producers that I work with the most, he literally 
he knows he has the album in his head from start to finish. He knows exactly what it's going to be, and so all it ha- it's like Alfred Hitchcock with a movie. All he has to do is shoot it. Um, I've worked with other producers that do a lot of laying of the tracks and stuff like that, where you kind of get the feeling they aren't sure what the, how the whole album's going to hang together. Um, but Kurt's done a lot more pop-oriented albums where there is a lot more laying of the tracks and, and stuff. Well, the, the New Moon was a really interesting, interesting recording session because we did it, I think, the way that they used to do it back in... In my day. The old days where, <laughs> I toured with the where we actually Megaphone. had one big room, the conductor was at the front of the studio, the orchestra was in front of was in front of the conductor, the principals were right behind the orchestra, and the chorus was on risers um, behind the principals. And so it was an unbelievable... I had never seen anything like it. It was amazing. Mm. Microphones all over the place. The only people that were isolated a little bit were the, were the, were the, was the percussion. Um, and they were in rooms, but the doors were open. So you really felt that it, and nobody was on headphones. Everybody was just kind of there. And it was just a live, unbelievable recording day. Um, Lauren Ward was in London. She was the only principal who was missing that day. So she couldn't be there. So we had to overdub her. So she actually came in to a tiny little room with a little microphone and we left her stuff blank, and she came in and sang her her things. So she's the only one who wasn't live. And if you listen to the recording, I don't think that you would know that that she wasn't there. But that was that was that. A lot of times for hair, which I'm doing right now, there was a lot of people who weren't able to be there the day of the the recording. So and, we tracked. And we should say that hair is based on a benefit performance right. that was given here in New York. That was you're not recording a production of hair, but no. you're you're capturing what was really only a single night's performance, right. obviously, with but unbelievable doing it in the with unbelievable talent. With who um, you probably couldn't get right. to be in the run of a show. Who, who's included in that? Uh, Harvey Firestein. <laughs> I, I love those Harvey Firestein albums. They're just my favorite. I know. He they sings. Keep coming. Yeah. It's just so good. Um, uh, Anna Gasteyer, Leia Delaria, Lilius White. Uh, Raul. Raul Esparza, Adam Pascal, Jennifer Hudson. American Idol's Jennifer Hudson. American wow. Idol's. Um, yeah, it's Billy Porter. I mean, the, it's, it's an incredible, incredible recording. But as a result, because if those people are all disparate people, they're not working together at the same time in a sustained run of a show, right. you need to grab them differently. Yesterday, Laura recording. Benanti came in because she's been in L.A. She came in and did her song. Um, but we, so we tracked most of it, a lot of it. A lot of it was live. The whole chorus was live. A lot of the principals did it live. But we've had to kind of spread it out a little bit, and that's just what you have to do sometimes. Now, on, on the subject of cost, before we move beyond that, I think it was you, Kurt, a little while ago, half an hour ago, uh, <laughs> almost like a, like a throwaway line mentioned the composers and the lyricists don't get paid up front. They get a portion of the sales. Yeah, the, is, is that correct? Yeah, it's called a mechanical license. Yeah, how, how does that work? Um, there are rules that basically says uh, it's eight cents a song under four minutes long, and then it's like after if it's over four minutes, it's like uh, twelve cents a song. Is it twelve? It's like time and a half, or and, and that's right. per CD. Per that's CD, sold. But usually, what you do is you cap it at a certain amount. You get an album rate. Yeah, it's somewhere between seventy-five cents and a dollar. I would right. say that the composers get. Um, basically, per, C- per, per CD. CD sold. Yeah. That, that, importantly, a record company can't 
screw them out of. Um, it's it's money that has to be paid out. It can't be the victim of fuzzy accounting. Right, and so, it's paid out from the the first day of release of the record. So, in the case of Wicked, Stephen Schwartz would have gotten a couple hundred thousand so far to date, based on audited sales. Is that? I how guess it works? that's how he's paying for his house. And out of cur- <laughs> and out of curiosity, because there are often on musicals. Uh, three different people involved in writing. You have the book writer, a composer, and a lyricist. Certainly on the album, the composer and the lyricist. Do the book writers see anything from cast recordings? Rarely. Um, well, they they see something as they get 60... The producers get a royalty. The producers of the show get a royalty. Let's say it's 16 or 18% of the retail cost or the wholesale cost. 60% of that 18% goes to the author's 40% of that goes to the producers. Um, so that's where a book writer would get his money, his or her money, from the album. Um, but that those that royalty doesn't get paid out until the recording has recouped all of its costs. Um, Which is that hundred and fifty dollars to $500,000 figure depend, that we talked yeah. about. And depending. since you've broached the topic, yes. we often hear the figure that on Broadway, only Four out of five shows never recoup their production costs. What is the general consensus about cast albums recouping their costs? On the advice of counsel, um, <laughs> I, uh, it depends. You, it, we're in a corporate world. I, I, don't, I, I won't speak for Kurt. I will speak for – and I'll speak for me. I won't no, speak no, for you. you. No, no, no. Okay. Um, in corporations, as the rest of the world knows when they work for corporations, after a certain period of time, you write off those costs. And so quite often an album's life, an album's costs will be written off before the album recoups. And then two, so let's say you wait two years after the album has been released and then the company writes off the cost of that album – Anything that that album brings in to the company is profit, but that the income from that still goes into the recouping paradigm, even though that doesn't matter anymore. It's very, it's a very, very confusing. It's model. a very confusing thing, and um, I would venture to say that most albums do not recoup. I would say that a lot of albums break even, but between breaking even and recouping, there's a hundred thousand units. So what in this difficult economic paradigm that we keep talking about, what are, your, what are your triggers for actually choosing to do an album? What are the things that most appeal? What are the things that you need to see other than obviously you know, your own belief that, that the material is terrific? You mentioned Julie Andrews. Was it Julie Andrews that made putting it together a valuable property? Was it Stephen Sondheim? Was it where that show was at? In its, in its life, because the Julie Andrews recording was when the show was at Manhattan Theater Club. It was off-Broadway. It was not on Broadway. And, and I'm looking at Bill as I'm saying this. Um, Bill, you also made an interesting choice in that you recorded Ragtime before the show was in full production, and then you went back and recorded it again. How do you make choices like that? Um, I need my pills. I need my pills. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I'll de- first, I'll deal with putting it together. Um, at the time that I started at RCA, uh, the company had had a 17-album and 15- or 18-year relationship 
with Stephen Sondheim, where it was kind of understood that any Stephen Sondheim show, gala, benefit, tag sale, whatever, they would record it if he wanted it recorded. Um, Shortly after I joined the company, there was another recording company that decided to make it its business to record Stephen Sondheim. They, as I like to say, took the Sondheim pill. And um, so I was in a bidding war for to get the rights to putting it together because at that point Cameron McIntosh was involved. Actually, he's always been involved with putting it together. It was going to move to Broadway right after the Manhattan Theater Club uh, engagement. But Julie decided she didn't want to continue with it and the reviews weren't very good. But it was part of our ongoing commitment to Stephen Sondheim that that's why we did it. Um, the fact that Julie Andrews was in it was a bonus. It, it could have been anyone in it, and we, we still would have done it at that point. Um, as for Ragtime, uh, it was my clever idea as job insurance um, <laughs> to uh, strike a deal with Garth Drabinsky, who was um, make was heading the company Livent, and they had about eight musicals in development and a way for me to avoid the bidding wars that would happen for each of those major musicals was to do an overall blanket deal with Garth for all of the live ant musicals. And I justified it on a corporate level because I said there will be a steady flow of product for a six or seven year period of major mainstream Broadway product. And the corporation went along with that. As part of that contract, Garth demanded, as only he could, um, that there would be a concept album of Ragtime. Then we had a long, hard, miserable battle about doing a Broadway cast album um, that I I eventually won the battle because I got the time frame but it, I didn't really win it. The show got postponed by the right amount of time. I had initially lost the battle because I said I didn't want to release one within 18 months of the first one, and it ended up being two years. Brian, how do you come to these decisions? I, I was going to say that I think any of us who work for the corporations uh, tell the same story. We're not allowed to uh, pursue or record a cast album that we know will lose money. For the company, it's we're just not allowed to do that anymore. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to do that, uh, but in any case, it's become a little harder um, to try to guess the odds on whether a show will make money. Now, there, if, if there's a show I believe in, I will I will figure out all kinds of ways to make to to produce it and to bring it in within the budget, um, or I'll try to figure out. Uh, what the life of the show is, an expectation of what the show will produce. And if I can make a cohesive and clear argument uh, to the executives that the show, it's a risk worth taking, then then they'll let me do it. A show that I love, truly love, but I feel um, cannot make its money back regrettably will not be something I could produce. It's very sad. Uh, I'll tell you, though, sometimes it's very uh, – it's, it's a, a feeling of relief when I go to see a show and I have in the last couple of years a show that I adore and I know I'll never record it because I just sit back and relax. I'm not counting the songs. I'm not wondering how much a performer is making. I'm not counting how many people are sitting in the theater. I'm just enjoying the show. But, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a cynical way to look at it. But it's, it's very 
difficult today uh, in the corporation, and and they, uh, uh, at least where I am, they want every show to make money. Uh, and it's not even just breaking even anymore. It's it's making money. It can be a little money. I mean, it can be a, a tiny profit, but it has to show something. So when you're pitching the corporate hierarchy that I think this show should be made into an album, what are you looking at? Ticket sales, number of people in the theater, that kind of stuff? No. Or? Now, that's that's an interesting question also because there's this, this wide range um, of, of factors where a hit show can not necessarily be a hit album. Um, so not only am I seeing a show and saying, is this going to be a hit on Broadway or off-Broadway or, or wherever, uh, on the, uh, just on tour, um, I'm saying – Will it be a hit and will it sell albums? Now, there are, there are not a lot of examples of flop shows that have sold uh, uh, tremendous amounts of, of uh, albums. I'm sure there, there are some that we can think of. Um, but there are many, many hit shows that have not uh, been hit albums. And, and that's a problem. So we're, Such as? Um, well, I don't – Mention uh, another label. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I could. Um, Full Monty? Yeah, well, yeah, let me say – let me talk about the Full Monty. It was my album – and, and my show, and I think it's a great show, but for whatever reason, it didn't translate into album sales. It did okay. I think we broke even or, or even made a little money, but it was a disappointment in terms of album sales. Um, it was in the shadow of the producers the year that it opened. But the show itself suffered to the some sh- degree, so whether the, the fortunes of, of the album mirrored the fortunes of that show. It, it was – for whatever reason, people stood and cheered and loved the show and walked out and didn't say, you know, I want to pick up that album on the way home. They just didn't. And the score was hip and pop and jazzy and quirky and that, for whatever reason, did not translate to an audience wanting to go and buy that album. You raised something I want to ask about, and then we certainly want to ask Kurt this question as well with, with a different – with a di- again, the different scale of, of his new new company. But – how much does an album sell at the concession stand in the mm-hmm. theater versus how much is it about somebody going to their local record store? I, I can tell you uh, that 10% of an audience every night will buy a, a record at the store. Hmm. So, so if you have, for example, Mamma Mia, uh, if, if the, the theater sells 1,500 uh, seats, 150 people will buy it that night. And it, and it gets lower if, if the show is only playing 1,200 that particular night. It's only 100. But it also has to do with how the theater has set up its concessions. Yes, yes. well, absolutely. Important. I think that actually is really true for the full Monty because I actually remember going to the theater – and remember, there was just a just tiny a little, little yes. table, and and there weren't. I mean, put the CDs at the bar. Put the CD. Have exactly. somebody walk. Have the ushers walk around and say, "Get the CDs at intermission." Well, you know, right now at Brooklyn, they actually have a stand out on the sidewalk the after the show as you leave. You're leaving, big right. display. It's, up here. it's very yeah. smart. Well, I know. Oh, I'm, I'm and, the, yeah, no. and wicked, you guys. Wicked, are you can't there. meet. You can't miss the. Uh, the no, it's, it's, huge it's everywhere. Now, when thing. we did the boy from Oz, however, half the audience or two thirds of the audience went out the back door and never. Saw a CD <laughs> vendor, and that was the end of that. So, yeah. what, what, what percentage of sales does that represent for you? Is it a small percentage or or significant? Um, it's I mean, it is. That's a good question. Um, it's gee, I don't know. I'm, I I have to think about this. It's 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 significant. Um, in other words, if those albums were not being sold in the theater lobby, it would significantly impact on your yes, bottom line. Would, yes. So, the ability yes. to get an album out 
quickly after a show opens, since you very rarely have a show recorded beforehand, the, the speed with which it's out on the stands and specifically in the theater can have a significant impact on your sales. I did. I mentioned Brooklyn, and it's, I think Billy mentioned casually that, in fact, the album isn't out yet, but they're taking pre-orders right. uh, so the, that they don't lose exactly. business. Smart, yeah. Now, the, the, the Boy From Oz was selling about uh, 1,200 copies a week during the middle of its run. Um, and the day after it closed, it went down to 300. Now, that's also because there's no advertising and, and people know it's closed and, and, and it's not in the public's consciousness as much. But a lot of it is because – But the albums are right in, in there with the T-shirts and the tote bags yeah. and, and the hats. Yeah. Now, Kurt, decisions for you. How do you <laughs> decide – which albums you're gonna you're gonna take the chances on? Is my wife in the show? <laughs> <laughs> and we should what say it's not entirely facetious. Like? Um, actually, uh, it's very interesting because this brings up why I started the company in the first place, and and it it has to do with I felt that um, investing a small amount of money, say thirty or forty thousand dollars, to make an album would be a good investment because my wife was playing to 15,000 people a week on Broadway. Now, I didn't have distribution. I, I figured I could put her name, I could put the website in the playbill and people would kind of come online if they liked her and, and buy her CD. That, she was, that I would be able to piggyback onto the show and somehow and pass postcards out after the show that there's a CD around. And maybe if I'll get lucky... Disney will sell them in the lobby, and maybe if I get lucky, we'll have we'll you know have get distribution. So that was kind of the the genesis of of why I started, kind of in a viral marketing kind of way. Um, there's a, a book called The Tipping Point that I think is a really fascinating marketing um, book, and it's all about viral marketing and what the computer and the internet is doing for um, record sales, and and so. Or not record sale to any kind of any kind of uh, selling. Um, did the hush same puppies. thing with Adam pa- Hush Puppies <laughs> exactly, um, and did the same thing with Adam Pascal. And Adam had a huge fan base with uh, Rent, and um, and now Aida, and now he's doing the movie of Rent. He's going to get even a bigger fan base. Um, so it started out as solo recordings um, for me. And then as I got into cast albums and kind of understood the cast album business, um, the, I, I realized that how screwed up the contracts were um, from the major labels because they just – it's, it's a ridiculous mathematical quagmire of why you don't make money. And I said to the producers of the show, I said, hey, I'll invest half the money. Why don't you guys invest half the money? And actually, Billy and I did this. Um, and – I guarantee you that you'll, you'll make your money back. Money, yeah. mm-hmm. And um, because I know every single drama student is going to want to sing these songs. Every single musical this theater. The this was years. the last five years. Every, you know, and it's a two-person musical. You know, it costs 100 grand to make, even with a two-person musical. Um, but it'll make its money back. Over the, it's, I think, the most produced show that's musical that's done last year in regional theaters. And so, you know, part of it is gut um, and part of it is thinking a little bit outside of the box and also trying to reach an audience that normally wouldn't buy. 
So if Brian's company, Decca Broadway, is kind of like a battleship, and uh, Bill over here representing uh, Sony, BMG, and EMI, they're kind of like aircraft carriers. What are you, like a PT boat finding a little niche? <laughs> you zo- zooming around trying to find projects you no, can specialize I, in? Or? Well, it's it, no. I think that it's – I think that it's uh, – I think we're all kind of doing it for the same reasons because we love theater and we want to try to figure out a way that cast albums can be made. Well, are, are, are you guys basically in competition for the same properties or are you looking for properties that would be too small for DECA or for BMG and Sony? No. We, I, I mean, we sometimes actually talk about working together. I mean, uh-huh. there's a project right now that, that I can't afford to do. I have a relationship with producers that we're trying to do in different ways and we're talking about you know doing stuff together. Billy and I have worked together. Um, but I, I also think that there are ways in which t- – there are different ways that you can do cast albums now. And there are different approaches that you can do do them with. And and so I think that it, it – I think Kurt's important. in probably the best position in that you don't have – a company hanging over you dictating rules and right. bottom lines and stuff so that as if you approach a company and say a, a, a producer and say you put up half the money and I'll put up half the money they're more open to it than whether if Brian or I do that because they look at us and go well you guys have, are with companies right. that have millions upon millions of dollars you if you want it so much put up the money yeah i guess i'm kind of like an independent producer in a way mm-hmm. And and I'm and I'm and I'm taking the approach that I'm a producer just like you guys are. I'll run your record little company, and I'll give and I'll hire. And you can hire me to produce your album. I'll distribute it. I'll do all that kind of stuff, and I'll and I'll help you out with marketing and all and all of those kinds of things. So that's that's in a way what it what it's about for me. Now, before we run out of time, I want to ask you all about another aspect of the cast album business, which is the business of reissues. Um, oh, it my favorite seems, topic. Well, it seems ka-ching, obviously ka-ching, that ka-ching. every time you know you go into the store, there's some. I keep seeing CDs of shows. In some cases, Brian, you've got some out. I saw CDs of shows I'd never heard of. Thank Ankles you. away, um, yes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so what? Again, to all that we've discussed and with only a couple of minutes left, what is the dynamic of how do you choose to to release one of those? The economic situation is obviously different because those recordings exist. Um, but what does it take to put those out and how do those, how do those work for a label? Well, in, in, in point of fact, when you – there are certain um, reissues that are, are chestnuts, which the company, any record company likes to have. Uh, in our particular case, it's Oklahoma and Carousel and The King and I. And, uh, but those have, um, have those ever really been out of release? They've never been out of release. We keep, um, we keep fixing them up and adding a few dollars to the price and, and making them nice. But you're talking about the back catalog stuff. And basically, uh, at least in my case, the company said – if you can make a dollar or you know or something uh just make any money on it do whatever you want with them the company absolutely did not care it is all below their radar uh, and I hope they're not listening. Um, but I love it. it happens we to be, hope they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's something that I love. I love the the old recordings, and I put them out um, basically because I like doing. The titles are chosen pretty much at my discretion. Um, they're all company owned. 
Uh, I do them rather inexpensively as reissues, uh, and they're they they they're semi successful, and and and, uh, and they're and that's how we operate with that. And when you do them, you kind of clean them up digitally. You make the sound, you enhance the sound because of new new techniques are available now yeah. that weren't available. I, I won't ago. bore you with this. I mean, this is a whole show in itself. But there's something fascinating about these reissues, which is that the mass manufacturing technology was just so much less advanced than the recording technology. So the least that we're doing is we're bringing it up to to its its original potential, and then we're even adding a little bit to it um, and making it sound even even a little brighter. And so in some cases, you're adding bonus tracks, things that oh, were not sure. available on and, the and, LP. Yeah, and those are just uh, those are sort of marketing gimmicks. Because yeah, obviously, CDs can run longer than LPs, and even the reissue CDs, you might have material that wasn't on the first CD version. Yeah, not not too often because they uh, they pretty much recorded what they could uh-huh. what they would put on. But sure, we add a little added value to it. Sure. What can we look forward to from, from you in the next few well, months? What, oh. <laughs> what, Baker Street, Baker Street. <laughs> well, the, anything that's not left has been, uh, that's not been put out is, is because it's just been tied up with these legal hassles. But we are working on a show called Cyrano, <gasps> uh, <laughs> which starred Christopher Plummer and had a very limited run on Broadway, but which is a huge collector's favorite uh, because it's all it's And it will immediately drop the fact that if you go on eBay, you now have to pay $100 to buy – an LP of Cyrano, when it comes out on CD, you'll change that economy immediately. Exactly, exactly. And very, very quickly, Billy, when you were at um, RCA, you also did a number of anthology albums yes. where you were pulling tracks obvious, primarily, I would assume, from within your existing catalog and in some cases acquiring outside tracks to create these mixes. I never acquired outside never tracks. Never acquired. Never acquired outside tracks. How did those kind of albums sell – differently and what's the rationale in doing that kind of an album? The compilation albums sell better than the reissues of the marginal to flop shows that I reissued. Um, but they're for a completely different consumer. There, there are people and they aren't the show fanatics. They're, there are people that just like show tunes and they just want to hear an album of 18 show tunes. And so their greatest hits albums, greatest hits but albums, not and that's of a particular show. And Kurt, you're at the point where we need to be talking to you in 20 years when you start bringing your your shows back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The that reissue version. of a more <laughs> yeah. karaoke, karaoke a more of, uh, last five years. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we got bright lights, big city, hair um, coming up in in 05, and then we just released Finian's Rainbow. The new moon, and but Christine no, Eversol, no reissues so well. yet. No way. Well, as we wrap up now, and we've made a big point of the the finances here. As you, the radio listener, goes out to the record store and buys an album, you know how much money the musicians get and all that. Keep in mind, the retailer gets money, and everybody along the line gets money. The people that ship this stuff to the stores, they get money. But if Take- you don't buy. Yeah. They're not going to get recorded. If you don't buy, they're not going to get recorded. But it's when in ter- from by big corporations, right. the small independents will will, con- will I think will always be there somehow by hook or by crook. And when you take that CD home, take out the little booklet that comes with it, look at the liner notes. You will see the name Brian Drutman on many a Decca release. <laughs> you will see the name Bill Rosenfield on many an RCA release. I presume now in the future other companies as well. I have no idea. And you will certainly <laughs> see the name Kurt Deutsch on releases from Shikaboom and also the new Ghostlight Records, your new brand new label. So to Kurt Deutsch and Brian Drutman and Bill Rosenfield in reverse alphabetical order, thank you very much for being with us today on Downstage Center. 
for Downstage Center and for the American Theatre Wing. I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of you that these programs, as well as all of the media programs of the American Theatre Wing, are available online as free streaming audio and video at www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.